wanted to thank uh, our deacon, also a licensed pastor, Josh Wall, for preaching last week. Um, I told you that I had to be in Florida. Sorry, it was 80 degrees while I was there. You guys know what that was like. But I was inside almost the whole week doing training and stuff with other ministry leaders and pastors. Um, I'm actually going to be gone this coming weekend. Um, i got to do a training in California with a Vietnamese church on Saturday, then preaching at the church on Sunday. And, but it's good for you because Pastor Kareem Smith is going to be here uh, filling the pulpit this, this coming our week from today, next Sunday. I want to show you a picture. Uh, this uh, A year ago, we were in the middle of having a house built for us. And it's a really nice house. It is really nice. We thank the Lord for it. I was showing pictures of the house to some of the, the Tanzanian pastors I was working with a couple months ago. And they're like, wow, man, that's a really nice house. That's, you know, and I said, you know, honestly it is. It's a very nice house. Um, we're thankful for it. But what it is really is, you know, I've been a pastor for 30 years. And what the, that's 30 years of hard work, 30 years of saving up. Um, my wife and I, we, we drive old cars so that we could, you know, it, that's what it is. It's just, it's long time working and able to do that. We're really thankful for the house. Uh, a year ago, we were right in the middle of building it. And here were some of the, one of the inside pictures. They had just gotten the paint done. We were excited about the paint. Everything was coming together. And as we were going through the whole building process of the house, I was trying to compare and think about how is building a house similar to building a church. Now, I'm not talking about the physical church building itself. You know that this structure is not the church. This is the church building. Right here around us, you look around, that's a church, you and me. How is building a house similar to building a church? Think about that for a second. And this is, this is nice because we're not, you know, a thousand people, so you can't interact. What are some ways that come to your mind of how building a house is similar to building a church. Need a firm foundation? That's exactly right. If you don't have a firm foundation, nothing else will be straight. When they were building our house, and they dug out for the footers, and it was really wet, and they were bringing the cement trucks down in there to pour the foundation, one of the cement mixers was backing up down our driveway. And Julio, you like our driveway, don't you? It's, it's a little bit windy. You like it too, Chuck. And, well, that cement mixer, he drove off the side and tipped upside down. I don't know how they got that out of there. I was out of the country at the time when that happened, but it dumped over upside down. And so all the cement that they had already poured for part of the foundation, they had to pull it all out. Because if it didn't cure at the same time with all of it, if it cured at different times, it wouldn't be a strong foundation. wouldn't be a firm foundation at all. So the foundation is important. What are some other things between a house and the church. Good support walls. You've got to have strong walls. They've got to be the right size. They've got to fit together. Other things. Okay, there's a blueprint. You've got to have this blueprint. You've got to follow. You can't just have six different people with their... Like, this building here may not have had a blueprint following the blueprint. But you've got to have a blueprint. Now, you've got to have a roof, Right? The walls that Christine talked about, the walls go in before the roof. The roof's got to go on before you paint the walls. You want to paint the walls before you put in the flooring because you don't want paint on the flooring. There's a certain order to doing things. You look at the life of Jesus, he did things in a certain order to build his church. 
you build the house, you've got different tradesmen doing different skilled labor jobs. And in the church, you've got different people who are good and better at different... You don't want me leading worship. You don't want me with your kids in there. Did you say double amen to that, Brian? You, you have different people who are different skills doing different jobs. All of us following that blueprint. When I was in Florida a week ago, that's what I was doing. I was training other pastors, teaching other pastors. That's what I'll do next week in California is teaching the blueprint, just looking at Jesus. What did he do? How did he build his church? And we know that Jesus built his church with leaders, with his disciples, with his, his apostles. And if you remember, we're, this is week three of a seven-part series on Peter, his top apostle, his top leader, this person that he was building the church with and building the church upon. We already saw that Peter was somebody who failed. Remember that? And we can all identify with that because we all fall down. But Peter got back up. Judas fell down and stayed down. Peter fell down and got back up. All of us, as individuals, followers of Jesus, we're going to fail. We're going to fall down. And our call is to repentance and to get back up, learn from it, and keep on going and growing. We saw that leaders fail. We also saw that leaders shepherd other people. If you're a leader in your school, leader in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in the church, we care for other people. We shepherd them. We feed them God's word. We correct them. We protect them. We direct them. Remember those? We said those a couple weeks ago. Today, we're going to look at leaders who build. Now, you might say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not really a leader in the church. This doesn't pertain to me. Each one of us are called to be God's leaders in the world that he's put us in, whether it's our neighborhood, our workplace, our home, within our families, our schools, wherever we're at, we're called to be his leaders. And so we can learn how to build people around us the way that Jesus did. We're going to be in Matthew today. Uh, week one, we are in Luke. Week two, we are in John. Today, we're going to the other, another gospel. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. Now, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, this took place, this incident took place about seven to eight months before Jesus was crucified on the cross. If you remember, week one, it was the night before he was crucified on the cross. Week two, it was about, 40, it was about 10 days later, 12 days later, after he died, rose again, before he sent him to heaven. We're going to go back about seven months before this. So this is summertime. This is maybe beginning of August that this incident takes place in Caesarea Philippi. Let's look at a map. Right up here, the top of the map is Caesarea Philippi. Right here, there's a river that runs. This is the upper Jordan. runs down to the Sea of Galilee. Here's Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Here's Capernaum where... Two weeks ago where Jesus had breakfast waiting for, uh, for his disciples and Peter. And then we're up in Caesarea Philippi this week. Some of the context here. Just before he went to Caesarea Philippi, he was east of the Sea of Galilee. This region east of the Sea of Galilee was called the Decapolis. Does anybody know what Decapolis means? Ten cities. So there were ten pagan cities to the east of the Sea of Galilee. The west side 
was Jewish. The east side was pagan, worshipped false gods. He was in those ten cities. What was he doing there? He had just fed 4,000 people. Remember that story, the feeding of the 4,000? He had just done that, took a boat over to Magdala. And in Magdala, there were two groups of religious leaders there waiting for him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. They did not get along with each other. But with Jesus, they came together against him. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they became friends, and they were criticizing Jesus. Why? Because they were very religious, very self-righteous. And they had set up a lot of different religious rules that Jesus wasn't following. He was obeying God's rules, not their religious rules. They were what we would call, we talked about this a few weeks ago, legalistic. They set extra rules. They had certain ways you had to dress, certain ways you had to wash your hands before eating, and Jesus wasn't following their rules, so they didn't like him. Jesus was just with them briefly, got in a boat, and went to Bethsaida. In Bethsaida, he healed a blind man. Bethsaida is sort of on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. This was a city that where there were pagans and Jews together mixed in there, so he went there. And then from there, did the 40-mile journey. That's at least two days. That's a beautiful drive up to Caesarea Philippi. It'd be a beautiful walk, but it's up and down hills and, and things like that. So it's at least two days, maybe three days walk. Why did they go there? Because there was limited fruit with the self-righteous, so Jesus was going to the lost and meeting more with the lost. And Caesarea Philippi was a definitely a lost place. This is what um, it looks like there. You see this platform. This was the religious center of Caesarea Philippi. See this water? This is water that came from Mount Hermon, the largest mountain in the Middle East. As the snows would melt, it would come down here. And this was one of the three forks that formed the upper Jordan River. You see this hole back here where all those people are gathered? That's a big stinking hole in that rock. Uh, that hole, they called that the gates of hell. The rock color back in there, here's a close-up of it, is all red. If you've ever been to Wyoming or to Utah or to Colorado where they have the Red Rock Amphitheater, it's red rock. So that's part of what gave it its name, the gates of hell, because it was red there like the fires of hell. Uh, they also named it the gates of hell. Because there's something that added to the redness there. And what added to the redness was um, blood. They would sacrifice children in that hole. Here's a picture of what the archaeologists assume were there because of all the foundations they found. Here's a temple to Augustus right in front of the gates of hell. And there was an altar there where they would sacrifice children and throw their bloody bodies and spill the blood back in the gates of hell. Right there in Caesarea Philippi. They worshipped the god Pan there, the Pan god. We get Peter Pan from the Pan god. The Pan god was half goat, half human. Uh, very lush and green forest there, so there was a lot of hunters there, and that's why they worshipped this, this Pan god. And they would sacrifice children to this Pan god in hopes that their harvests of meat and wild game would be fruitful, and so they would sacrifice these kids there. I guarantee you that these disciples, Peter and the disciples, had never been there before. 
not that far, just 40 miles. Beautiful countryside, but that was an evil place. It was a dark place. It was a demonic, pagan place. Good Jewish people would never go there. If you were to go there, you would be religiously unclean to worship God in his temple. They wouldn't go there. So where did Jesus take them? He took them right there to the gates of hell. Let's keep reading. Remember, Jesus had just said, took them to Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them right there, he asked them, hey, who do people say that I am? Verse 14, they replied, some say that you're John the Baptist. At this point, John the Baptist had already been killed, so some people didn't never met him before. They thought, well, this is just John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they thought he was a prophet who came back to life. Verse 15, Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? just want to point out that each one of us will be asked this question. When we die and stand before God, this is the one question that you've got to get right. You might look back at your life and say, I've got a lot of regrets. There's a lot of things that I've done that were the wrong thing. Anybody else besides me? I've done a lot of things I regret. I've, I've gotten a lot of things wrong. This is the one thing you've got to get right. All those other wrongs, they can be put aside. If we get the answer to this question right, then it's all for us. It's good for us. Young people, people are saying, what are you going to do with your life? You're going to go to college? What college? That's not the most important decision. What job should I have? What career should I pursue? Not the most important question. Who should I marry? Important, but not the most important. Where should I live? What should I buy? What car should I... Those are nice questions, but not the most important. Most important is who do you say that Jesus is? Verse 16, here's Peter's answer. Peter said, You are the Christ, which means the Savior, the Messiah. You're the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's the right answer. That's the answer that we've got to get right. For this was not revealed to you by man, but it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. That word Christ, like I said, means Savior. When he said, You're the Son of the living God, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, in John 21, after Jesus rose from the dead, they referred to Jesus as Lord. Before that, they called him Master, they called him Teacher, they called him Rabbi. But after he rose from the dead, they knew he was the Son of God. They knew it because they saw it with their own eyes. Seven months before that, Peter confessed it. Hey, you're the Son of the living God. You're not just you know, the Messiah that we thought you were. You're the Son of God. God revealed that to him. To believe that Jesus is our Savior, that comes from God drawing us to Him. John 6.44 that says that nobody comes to Jesus unless the Father draws Him. And the Father was drawing Peter. The Father's drawing us. Let's keep reading. We're almost done. Verse 18, Jesus continued to say to Peter, I tell you that you are Peter. This Greek word here is Petros. You are Petros. And on this rock, the word for rock is Petra, 
You're Petros, and on this Petra, on you, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, guess where they were just standing there? The gates of hell will not overcome it. I just want to, before we finish verse 19, um, a lot of discussion has taken place as to what this actually means. What does Jesus mean here when he says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it? Well, there's three different ideas that could all be true. In fact, they're all technically true. But what did Jesus mean when he said this at this point? One of those ideas is when Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, is upon this confession you just made, Peter. You just said that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that confession, I'm going to build my church. The church of Jesus that exists today that we're a part of, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Son of the living God. And upon that confession, the church is built. That's what some people think Jesus meant there. Other people would say that when Jesus said, Upon this rock, he was talking about that physical rock. Did you see the rock there? That big platform? In other words, he was saying, In places like this, in dark places, in demonic places, in ungodly places, I'm going to build my church there. And you can make that argument. If you look at the news today, the fastest growing body of believers today in the world is in the country of Iran. A dark place, an oppressive place towards believers and towards Christians, and that's where the church is exploding over there. Jesus will build his church in the darkest of places. Some people say that's what he meant. Upon this rock right here, I'll build my church in those gates of hell. Dark places can't overcome it, can't stop it. The third suggestion is when he said, you know, you're Peter, and on this rock on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And honestly, in the third and fourth centuries, the Catholic church started on that confession. That's why they have St. Peter, what they would say was the very first pope of their church, even though he wasn't alive when they started their church. And what's happened is then Protestants, in reaction to that, in overreaction to that, said that's not what Jesus meant at all. So they discard that idea altogether. Where do I land on it? I think Jesus was talking to Peter, saying, You are Petros, and on this Petra, on you, I'm going to build my church. On leadership, on the, on, on the, the foundation of my disciple-making leaders, Peter, James, and John, and the others, I'm going to build my church. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Verse 19, he finally said, I'm going to give you, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to give you leadership to help other people enter the kingdom of heaven. How do they do this? By believing and confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the thing that Peter had just confessed. You're going to help people enter heaven. I'm going to give you the the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He's talking here about the gates of hell and the enemy himself, Satan. You're going to be able to bind Satan and his demons. In order to give people entrance into heaven, Satan needs to be bound because he has hold on them now. And then he said, you're going to bind on earth, will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And this word loose means set free. Whatever you set free, and he's talking about the people that you share the gospel with. People that confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, will be set free and loose from the grip of Satan and darkness. 
Peter's been given authority and leadership and responsibility to be a leader, to war against the devil, to disciple people, to usher them into the kingdom of heaven with the gospel of Christ. That's what Jesus was saying here. Peter was becoming Jesus' disciple-making leader. And from this interaction today in Matthew, we see five important vital things that leaders know. And the first thing that they know is they know who is the owner. And you know who this Who's this guy? That's Jimmy Haslam. What does he own? He owns the Cleveland Browns. The owner has power. He has the power to name the stadium. He has the power to change the uniforms. He has the power to fire people and hire people. And fire people and hire people. And fire people and hire people. And fire people. And he can do that every year if he wants. He has the power to make all the decisions. Why? Because it's his team. He's the owner. Does the equipment manager have the authority to hire and fire? Nope. Does the quarterback have the authority to name the stadium? Nope. Do the fans have any authority over who to draft? Or even who to choose as an owner? Nope. Because we're not owners. Verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's a possessive word. It's his church. As his people and as his leaders, we must know that Jesus is the owner of the church. He is the owner of this church. Freedom Bible Church is his. So as we look at our budget today at our business meeting, it's his. We asked him, what do you want us to spend your money on? It's yours. You're the owner. When we make plans for 2020, for this year, next next weekend Super Bowl Sunday, today is kind of like Supervision Sunday for us, What's your, what does God want us to do in 2020? We listen to him because he's the owner. We try to do what he wants us to do. So Jesus is the owner, but to some extent now, as leaders, as his people, as, as members of this church, and if you're a part of this church, I don't like to use the word attenders, because attenders just insinuates I come on Sunday morning and that's it. But as, as, as active participants in his church, to some degree, we take ownership of it. We don't take ownership away from him, but we take ownership to the extent that we serve in the church. We give to God to support the church when we put money in that box back there. We pray for each other. We pray for the church. We invite friends and family to church. We take pride in our church. And we want this church to be healthy and to be strong and to honor God, to really be the body of Christ that is growing and we're a beautiful bride of Christ. So to some extent, we do take ownership, but not away from Jesus, but under Jesus. Because Jesus is the owner. Jesus is the boss. We try to obey him and do what he wants us to do. We try to honor him in how we do it. So disciple-making leaders know who the owner is. And also, leaders know who's the foundation. In verse 18, Jesus said, upon this rock, he said, upon Peter, upon Petros, Peter, you're the leader. 
I'm going to build my church. He identified Peter as the foundational leader, the foundational figure. And nine months later, when we get to the book of Acts, we're going to see that Jesus indeed did build his church on Peter, James, and John. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, uh, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's household and members of God's household. Members of your citizens with God's people, and you're members of God's household. In other words, you're the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He's talking about Peter here. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ, Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone. God's leaders are the foundation. Let's look at what a cornerstone looks like. It's a first century building. Uh, this is the cornerstone in that building. Here's a, a natural bedrock foundation and another foundation built upon that natural bedrock. But that cornerstone, that's what Scriptures is calling Jesus. The cornerstone of a building, it made the rest of the structure square. You can see the right angle at the corner of it. It made everything else level. That's Jesus, the cornerstone. It made the foundation solid, made the foundation true. Everything else was measured and built off of the cornerstone, the direction that the cornerstone gave it. So Jesus gave direction to Peter, to all the apostles. He gave them their true north. He gave them their grounding. And then he built his church upon them. They were the foundation. Now is Jesus' church today, as his body of Christ today, he is still our cornerstone. He is our true north. He models for us our life and our ministry as a church. And as Jesus is building his church today, as he's building Freedom Bible Church today, he's building that on the foundation of our leaders. As he's developing leaders. So our plans, as you know, where we first have our deacon team, and then we'll have our elder team looking at Scripture that way. Uh, when I was in Florida a couple weeks ago at our disciple-making conference, I was training a lot of different pastors in the room, and one of the number one frustrations that the pastors had was their elder team. I'm like, what's wrong with that? He's like, well, our, a lot of times our elder teams function like an elder board, like a corporate board, where they want to be decision-makers rather than disciple-makers. So I asked these pastors, well, whose fault is that? And they don't say anything. I say, well, who appointed these guys as elders or deacons on these teams? Well, I guess I do. Why did you do if, if they weren't ready for it, why did you put them on there? It's important. To, in fact, there's one church, as they are trying to now, uh, they're trying to let Jesus write the blueprint, let Jesus be the owner of the team. They've had elders resign because of the direction that they've gone with that. Jesus was very careful in choosing his leaders, in developing his leaders, in building his church on those leaders. And we're trying to be the same way, being very careful and slow and methodical in how we do that. And leaders, leaders know who the owner is, know who the foundation is, and know who is the architect and the builder. Now, we've already established that Jesus wrote the blueprint. He's the architect. He drew up the plans for his church. He made disciples. That was his plan. 
And as his leaders, as his people, disciple-making leaders, we've got to know that Jesus gave us that blueprint. We follow that blueprint. When we had our house built a year ago, and we had our blueprints given to the builder, we didn't say to him, hey, by the way, we want you to make our garage about 15 feet wider. He would say, I can't because it's not on the blueprint. It has to be drawn out so that it's done the right way. I couldn't say to him, hey, you know what? Our house is just a one-story house, but I want you to put some stairs into it. And where the attic is located, I want you to build it up even higher. Put a nice big window there so I can shoot my gun out that window. Karen would love to come over and help me shoot deer out that window or coyotes out that window. Our builder would say, we can't do that. It's not in the blueprint. It has to be in the blueprint. We've got to follow the blueprint. Jesus is the architect. He's given us the blueprint. It's not up for discussion. He's given it to us. We ask the question, well, what about us? What are we supposed to do? Jesus is the architect and the builder. Do we do anything? How do we take ownership in this? And I love this in 1 Corinthians. points this out to us. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11 says, We are God's fellow workers. So we work alongside Jesus. We're his fellow workers. We help him build. He says, you, you are God's field. You are God's building. So God is working on you personally. He's trying to grow each one of us. He is at work. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says that God is at work for our good. And our good is he's making us into the image of Jesus. Walking like Jesus. Living like Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's at work. We're his field. We're his building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. What's he talking about? Paul is saying, hey, I started some churches. And we know that from the book of Acts. Paul started some churches. And at this point in time, a man named Apollos was coming alongside and building on those churches, helping have influence and teaching and developing leaders in those churches. So he said, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else, Apollos, is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. And that's us. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is laying a foundation for his church, and that's us, his leaders. And then we're, as we're building with him, we're pointing everything back to Jesus. He's the foundation. He's the one who's the architect. He's the one who gives us the blueprint. He is building, and we are building alongside him. How do we do that? We make disciples the way that Jesus did. Now, why am I making such a big deal um, about Jesus building the church his way? It's his blueprint. We're beating the drum. He's the owner. He's the architect. He's the builder. We're the foundation. But he's the foundation, too. Why is that such a big deal? Well, if we look around us in our world, in our culture, the church in North America is trying to build the church according to other blueprints. Not all the time, not every church, but it's around us. Building on a different foundation. And like I said, I see it all the time. Um, part of the plan that I see in different churches is there is a, uh, a pastor-centered approach to building a church. Forty years ago, it was the pastor is Mr. Everything. He goes and visits everybody in the hospital. He does all the work. He prints the bulletins. He, it, it's a pastor-centered thing. Today, that pastor-centered thing is we've made our pastors almost idols. 
almost rock stars. When we elevate them, what they say is, is what God says. Rather than having a team of leaders and elders like the New Testament church, um, we've made a, a pastor-centered approach. There's also been a music-centered approach where the idea is, man, we make our worship service like a concert, and that'll get people to come to church. That'll get the world in because they can identify with that, with the lights and the smoke and all that stuff. Now, I'm not against lights. I mean, we need lights to see. Um, not against smoke, especially if it's going up my chimney out of my house when I'm lighting a fire there. But if that's our, our blueprint for building a church, then that's not the right blueprint. There's also a child-centered approach. For years it's been, hey, we've got to have a really nice children's ministry room with beautiful paintings and stuff on it of animals and, and stories. And families will say, oh, this is the best children's ministry of all the churches around. We're going to come here for our children. And the idea is we reach the children, then we'll reach the mom. And if we reach the mom, then we'll reach the dad. And that's sort of backwards from making disciples Jesus' way. You know, as we reach the head of the home, and then they lead the home and disciple the home. There's different approaches, different blueprints that, that people are, are using. I've got a friend, a good friend of mine. His, his name is, is Dobie Weasel. He's a native pastor from Nebraska. I met Dobie almost three years ago. I was uh, at a conference with native leaders. I had a little speaking part at the conference. Dobie was the main speaker. He was the first guy up on stage, and, man, he can preach. He is a fantastic, fantastic preacher. Uh, the second day that we were there, I had my part, and I was training about the life of Jesus, how he did ministry, how he made disciples. And afterwards, Dobie came up to me at this conference. He said, you know what? Your ten minutes on stage, that was the most significant time of this entire conference. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, you know, just the whole idea that Jesus had a plan. Jesus had a blueprint of how he was going to make disciples, and these disciples were going to be the build the church. He said, I never thought of that before. And he said, tell you what, he was. I've spoken at Promise Keepers before. I've been on the stage. I've led hundreds, probably thousands of people to Christ. He said, but honestly, I could count on one hand the people that I've discipled. And since then, I've been able to spend time uh, with Dobie here in Montana, in Florida, in South Dakota. And he's been telling me, he, he said, I want you to teach me how to make disciples like Jesus. Because the other approaches, these other blueprints that churches use, that's not Jesus' blueprint, is what Dobie said. So there's an architect, there's a builder, and it's Jesus. And we join him as builders as well. Not just by coming to church, but by being the church and building the church. With him and like him. It's important to recognize also that uh, there is an enemy. Verse 18 says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. In other words, the gates of hell, Satan is going to try to oppose us. And this word for overcome means he will not prevail. He is not strong enough to defeat the church of Jesus if it's built on the foundation of Jesus and his leaders. Caesarea Philippi was a spiritually dark place. It was demonic. They worshipped false gods. They uh, did child, child sacrifices. They killed children. They utilized temple prostitutes. In other words, people would go and have intercourse with prostitutes as a form of worshipping these false gods. A dark place. 
The church of Jesus will grow in places like this if we follow Jesus' blueprint. He'll do it. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell can't stop me if he's the one doing it. So as we as a church, as we build alongside Jesus, we're going to be opposed by the enemy. As God is building you, you're going to be opposed by the enemy. And you already know this, where he will tempt you and oppose you and assault you and lie to you to keep you from growing. He doesn't want Jesus glorified. He doesn't want the lost to come to Christ. He doesn't want people to grow as disciples. He doesn't want you to reach your friends and neighbors and relatives and make them into disciples. So he will oppose you. He will oppose us. He's powerful, but he's not strong enough to stop the work of Jesus. He cannot stop Jesus from building his church. How does he do this? He wants to destroy leaders through sin. He wants to destroy your life through sin, through your weaknesses, through the chinks in your armor. He wants to destroy you. He wants to put people in leadership in churches who aren't ready yet who are not biblically qualified, he attacks the church that way. He wants to distract the church by having us do a lot of good things, but keep us from doing the main thing, which is make disciples of Jesus. He wants to keep you from coming to church. He wants to keep you from being the church and building the church. He wants church leaders to think that they're the architect and the builder and the foundation, and everything depends on them, all eyes on them elevating them instead of elevating Jesus. We have an enemy. And finally, disciple-making leaders, they know who is the owner, know who's the foundation, know who's the architect and builder, know there's an enemy, and they know who is the Savior. Verse 16, Peter said, You're the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Church leaders are not the Savior. Church leaders are not to be worshipped. Jesus is. Only Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the testimony of truth that Peter proclaimed. You're the Christ, the living God. That is foundational for the church. So a question I'm going to leave us with today is, who's your Savior? Is Jesus your Savior? Have you put your faith in Jesus. Have you come to the same conclusion that Peter did? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This same Peter, eight months later, after this encounter, this is what he said in Acts. He said, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's just Jesus. So as we close today, I want to invite all of us to look at Jesus. If you've never put your faith in Jesus before to save you, to be your Savior, what's stopping you? When we die and stand before God and he asks, who do you say Jesus is? What's your answer? He's a good man. He was a good leader. He was a good teacher. Those answers aren't good enough. You would say, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Son of the living God. I have asked Him to forgive my sins. I've confessed to Him that I've sinned. And only He can save me. Only He can forgive me. 
That's the right answer. If you've never done that, what's stopping you from doing that today? You can tell him right now, Jesus, I believe you're the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the only one who can forgive my sins. I want you to do it. Please do that. Don't just be the Savior. Be my Savior today. Do that. If you're a church leader, Jesus is building the church upon you. If you would say, man, I'm really not a church leader, that's one of the sights to set on, is someday, as I grow, he's going to make me into his leader and ask him, God, make me into your leader in your church. I want to be like Peter. I want to be your man. I want to be your woman. I want to be your leader. To do that, we've got to know who's the owner. It's Jesus. Who's the foundation? It's us and Jesus. Who's the architect and builder? It's Jesus and us. There's an enemy. He's Satan, and he wants to destroy our lives, and he's the Savior. We need him. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our, our, our gathering this morning. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for providing us. Thank you for providing this church building. This is not the church. It's just a building, but you've provided that we can, we can utilize. We thank you for that again. Thank you for the church, your people, all of us here that are gathered together, Lord. Keep growing us, Jesus. Keep building us personally. Keep building this church, Lord. Bring the people that you want to be a part of it so that we can help people to, to grow and to know Jesus and follow Jesus and serve Jesus and obey Jesus. Help us with that, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would just keep uh, building us and that we would follow your blueprint as we help you build. We pray, Father, through Jesus our Lord. Amen.